I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dereshchai Experiment, the show where we are doing something completely new. So I told you about this a couple weeks ago, we are beginning a trip through the wisdom literature of the Bible, three books included. We're going to take around a year or so, I think, to get through these three books. These are the books of Job, Proverbs, and the one we're going to be starting with today, Ecclesiastes. Here to join me in this trip through these three books of the Bible is my beautiful wife, my best friend, my helpmeet, and the one person that I trust to edit my words. My wife, Rebecca, is here to have this conversation with me about these three books and what they mean. Hi. So there she is, ladies and gentlemen. She is real and not a figment of my imagination. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, we're going to be going through the wisdom literature. Are you excited for this? Absolutely. It's going to be an interesting ride. That is the truth. It is going to be extremely interesting. So why are we doing Ecclesiastes first? Why are we starting with this one? Because um, Ron asked us to. Because Ron asked us to. <laughs> there's that. But there's also, <laughs> we wanted to do the wisdom literature. And way back when in the intro episode for this for this podcast, I mentioned that I'm not really a scholar. I'm not a theologian. I'm more of a what, a, what I would term a biblical philosopher. And I think... Ecclesiastes is the closest that the Bible gets to biblical philosophy. Uh, it is absolutely profound in its depth, its breadth, its its the the things that it covers, the conclusions that the author comes to. Uh, it's it's so fascinating to me uh, this book and uh, and how it all comes together. Now there are three wisdom literature books. Uh, there are the other two are Job and Proverbs, and each one of them kind of has their own kind of feel. In uh, in Job, we're dealing with massive trauma. It's a man who's gone through uh, significant life events uh, that have left him just at the lowest that a person can get. And the rest of the book, that's like the first two or three chapters, the rest of the book is him struggling to make sense of his trauma, to come to terms with it. The book of Proverbs, I've said it before in the ancient world, the way that wisdom was imparted from one person to another or was uh, recorded for the ages was in lists. And the book of Proverbs contains just that. It is lists and lists and lists of wisdom proverbs, witty sayings, uh, thoughtful and deep sayings that uh, have a, a whole sense of meaning to them. It's kind of like a book of quips. In a way, yeah. It's kind of like a... Uh, yeah. 
that joke book that you go through when you're 12 years old and you've got <laughs> these these short one-liners or, or two two-line jokes that just one after the other after the other after the other and the book of proverbs is very much like that and we're going to find in the book of proverbs that the things that it says they're not really commands and the reason i say that is because often they're contradictory You'll have two lines back to back that will contradict each other 100%. So they're not commands that, as we usually conceptualize commands, they are, in truth, wisdom literature. But Ecclesiastes is, it's straight up philosophy. So uh, this week, we're not actually going to get into the content of Ecclesiastes itself. We are going to discuss the uh, some lay some groundwork for the book of Ecclesiastes because it is so so different than what's gone before and, and frankly there's not a whole lot of teachers out there doing stuff on these books I mean that's not to say that there aren't teachings on these books uh, but there's just not a whole lot of discussion going on about these books in the the wider uh, Christian pro Torah movement and so we decided to try and fill that gap so. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? That is a great question. That is a great question. Um, it is commonly attributed to Solomon. That is correct. But it's also thought that it's not written in the exact same style that Solomon writes and therefore might not actually be Solomon. Right. Very good. You did some research, didn't you? <laughs> All right. So, yes, she's absolutely correct. It's thought to be Solomon. Uh, there are some some uh, things that are said throughout the book that makes a person think it's Solomon, but the way it's written doesn't appear to be Solomon. And now I, I got to ask, how do we know how Solomon wrote? I mean, Song of Solomon is attributed to him. Yeah. That's a poem. So uh, other writings don't necessarily have to match. Proverbs, as we already discussed, is just a list of, of wise sayings. So why would we expect Ecclesiastes to match it in writing style? Because nothing else we have is written by Solomon. That's fair. So uh, that's just a question I had to ask. Because, um, Yeah, I would say that his prose writing may be very different from his poem, poetry writing. Exactly. When he composed a letter to go to another king, I don't think it sounded like the Song of Solomon. I or like the Proverbs. Quite frankly, hope it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe in, in authorship style, not in content. Okay, okay fair. That's fair. <laughs> All right. Well, so the answer to the question I asked, though, who wrote the book is the answer is Kohelet wrote the book. It's actually not even Kohelet that wrote the book. It is his scribe that wrote the book. The opening verses, it, it talks about these are the wise sayings of Kohelet. Uh, sometimes translated as the preacher. I believe it was Martin Luther was the first one to assign the word preacher to this word for Kohelet. And he got that from the Septuagint, which translates Kohelet as Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is, is related to the word ecclesia. We understand that to be the word church. And so he understood that to be the, the one who's the head of the church. Well, and Kohelet seems... And I'm no Hebrew scholar, but it seems to be getting its root as the same as Kohanim. Uh, not exactly. It's Kahal is where it finds its root. 
Um, kahal is the the congregation or the assembly. Anytime oh. in the Torah you hear of okay. the congregation or the assembly, that's the word kahal. And uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, uh, around 200 BCE, 150 BCE, somewhere in there, the they translated the word kahal as ecclesia. Okay. Um, so that they, that it's the same type of word. So the the Kohelet or the Ecclesiastes is the person who gathers the congregation or who gathers the assembly. You can you can understand why Martin Luther might think that it was the uh, it's the preacher as he puts it. But uh, in the ancient Near East, this is more likely that this was the type of person who would stand in the marketplace or stand in the temple courtyard and just start teaching or preaching, uh, start spouting off whatever it was that they. They had. It was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. They didn't have TV. They didn't have, they'd have people on corners who would be teaching or, or preaching or calling out or having conversations with crowds or doing tricks or whatever. That was their entertainment for a large segments of the day. And so the, the Kohelet is potentially, it's a wise man who would stand up and, or not even a wise man. It's just someone who stands up and does something to draw a crowd. Okay. Uh, it's as simple as that doesn't necessarily even have to be a preacher or a man of God. A Kohelet could be anyone who calls or assembles a crowd. So th this is the one who came up with these sayings. These words were then recorded by someone else, who we totally have no idea who that is. But as you so wisely said, it is likely Solomon. The opening of the book says he was a son of David. He is a king in Jerusalem. Okay, that limits it down the number of people who this could possibly be. In 116, it says that he has great wisdom more than any other who ruled in Jerusalem before. Well, that limits it because no one after Solomon had more wisdom than Solomon. So, in essence, it'd have to it be Solomon. It kind of has to be Solomon because he only has two predecessors. There's that, and, and Solomon asked for great wisdom when God exactly. agreed to give him whatever he wanted, and he asked for wisdom to be able to rule. In chapter 12, verse 9, it says that he set in order many proverbs. Now, that could be just talking about this book. It could be talking about Ecclesiastes saying, you know, this book is full of many proverbs, and I've set them in order for you, the reader. But it could also be talking about the book of Proverbs, which is uh, large chunks of it are attributed to Solomon, not all of the book of Proverbs. And we'll get to that when we get there. Uh, there is parts of the book of Proverbs that were actually written by Gentiles. What you say? You're going to have to wait on for that one. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned for that. So the thing that's really fascinating to me about this is that if this is Solomon, if Solomon lived 9th century BC. Uh, he died in 931 BC approximately. We don't know 100% for sure. But 931 BC. And this was written near the end of his life. There's, there's verses throughout that kind of lend credence to this thought that this whoever this was that the Kohelet is he was near the end of his life when he gave these proverbs so what fascinates me about this is that if this is in fact solomon died in 931 bc then hebrew philosophy predates greek philosophy by at least two centuries that's that's rather significant don't you think that is that is I have no words. <laughs> the the thing that fascinates me about this is we common hear about Greek philosophers. So we've got Plato, we've got Aristotle, we've got Socrates, we've got 
you've got all these wise men that were that were alive centuries before Yeshua, and that so many people will go to as the fathers of philosophy. In fact, the first, the earliest Greek philosopher is considered to be Thales of Miletus, and he lived 7th century BCE. That's two centuries after, after Solomon. What's interesting is that a lot of those a lot of those Greek philosophers ended up kind of being used to fuel atheism. Yes, very much so. Frequently, and the oldest philosophy that we have known to man, at least that we have written down, codified, um, strongly upholds the Bible and is actually in the Bible. So, <laughs> Right. Now, I'm not sure if this is the earliest philosopher. Uh, some of those earlier lists like Hammurabi's law code, stuff like that could be considered philosophical works mm -hmm. or what is law type type of uh, uh, works. Wisdom literature, at least. Uh, wisdom literature. Right, right. You're correct that the Greek philosophy is in many ways, even though it was set in a culture of paganism and surrounded by... Um, it at least was the root of mysticism, but there, there's still a lot of uh, modern day atheists who will point to some of the sayings of some of these various uh, philosophers as the foundation for their, or at least evidence for their own thoughts on atheism, their, their own conclusions on atheism. So that right there, that just fascinates me that it's two centuries before when, when I discovered that in my preparation for this it just kind of stopped me in my tracks for a moment and made me just kind of slow down and really think about wow this this deep work of biblical philosophy was predates all of these other works it predates homer by at least a hundred years it predates so many other of the Greek things that we hold up as these great works of philosophy and the earliest philosophers when they're not, they're not, they're obviously predated. Well, let's face it. We know that God tells us that Solomon was the wisest man yeah, ever. True. Right? right. So it's not that big of a stretch that the earliest philosophical teaching, what? philosophical work would be from the wisest man that ever lived. That's, that's actually uh, yeah, that's a very good point. So as we go through the book, there are going to be a couple things that we are going to encounter uh, over and over and over again. And uh, we kind of need to understand these words or these idioms um, before we get to the real meat of the, the book and the message that the book has. So the first of these words that we're going to encounter, and it's we encounter it very early on, is the word that's translated as breath or or vapor or vanity in in the King James. And this is the word hevel. It's got a chet at the beginning, so it's that guttural sound in the back of your throat. Hevel. This is the word that the name Abel is based on. Adam and Eve's second son, Cain and Abel. Hmm. This is his name. His name meant breath. Vapor. Breath. Okay. More so breath than futile, which is what mine translates it as. Futile uh, or actually, vanity. Uh, futile or vanity might actually be a good name for him because he died and didn't leave anything behind. He was a breath and a vapor. 
um, and that might actually be what the biblical authors were attempting to get at with that name. Uh, hmm. It's thought by some that the the names that are given at the beginning, uh, especially at the, be- the very beginning, before the flood, they were assigned names that were given later because the, the names were meant to convey some deeper meaning. Well, if you string them back to back, you get a story. Uh, true. The the names in Genesis chapter 6, if you string those names together, you do get a story that actually points to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But even names like Adam, it just simply means human. Eve, it simply means life. And Cain, well, as we see, Cain means breath and vapor. And what happens with Cain? No, he's not Cain. Sorry. Abel, you're correct. Thank you. <laughs> but what happens with Abel? He, he is on the scene for less than a chapter. He's there for a few verses, and then he's gone. He has no kids. He has no offspring. He has. He leaves no legacy behind, other than a good sacrifice. So, what did Cain mean? Uh, one second. Let me look that up. I don't know it I off remember. the top of my head. Genesis chapter four. She bore Cain. Let me get Son, the Hebrew uh, here. Uh, Cain, uh, possession. Possession, yeah. Possession. I've gained a man. I, I possess a man now. Um, so, yeah, he was a possession. And huh, what do you hmm. know? Cain possessed things. He, he possessed the honor. And when his brother almost mm-hmm. took his honor from him, what does he do? He kills him, gets him out of the way. He goes to the east, and what does he do? He possesses a woman, and he builds a... A family in a city and possesses sons and his children yeah, become all about possessions. Possession definitely is a good picture of how you kind of look at Cain possessing things rather than just being able to live. He had to attain. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and that's actually both of those names are very, very poignant to this current book. Um, because Cain is used throughout, or sorry, Hevel. Hevel is used throughout. Vapor, breath, this thing that is there, but it's not really there. Uh, it's fleeting. It, it's it's here a moment, gone another. You can't really touch it. It's not really tangible. Futile. It's it's futile. It's it's vanity even. <laughs> but then the word Cain, that that possessions, we're going to read very early on in chapter one about all of these possessions that the Kohelet. Uh, gathered to himself and how they were all themselves futile and vanity. And throughout the book, that's one of the going to be one of the returning themes that he goes through is the idea of possessions and how, how pointless gathering a lot of possessions are, which is actually kind of fascinating for a man who lived Solomon's life filled right. with the best possessions of life to get to the end of it and go, well, dang it, that was Pointless. That was pointless, right? <laughs> so, oh joy! Now I get to leave this to my uh, kids? kids. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's going to be a, a big part of a, a later chapter. Uh, something else that we're going to see repeated throughout the book is the phrase "under the sun." Oh, sorry. The word "vapor," "vanity," it appears around thirty-seven times in the book. It's only twelve chapters. That's multiple times per chapter. So it is a, a very huge part of the book it's multiple times per verse and sometimes uh, some cases. in some cases especially very early, very early on under the sun that's another idiom that we're going to encounter and this idiom it, it seems to point to physical life 
the author is recognizing that the things that he's looking at and the ways that he's thinking about it, they're, they're human, they're physical, they're tangible. And even the questions he's asking are, are dealing with physical human life and not necessarily with greater matters of spirituality. And so that, that's going to be a huge part of the book is the questions he's trying to answer are questions of human existence, not questions of relationship with God, not questions of, of, uh, the spiritual realm and interactions between God and man, uh, simply physical physicals. Yeah, yeah. Simply, it's simply our life under the sun, everything under the sun. What, what is life here on this earth like? And I think it almost, uh, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for here, but it, it almost pulls out the, just the complete, if you lived your life without God, it's literally without any point whatsoever, striving mm -hmm. after the wind. If you gain everything you could possibly gain and everything went perfect for you, so what? Right. If everything went terrible for you and you had the worst life you could possibly imagine, so what? Right. What's the point? If there's no God, it's completely worthless. It's all it's all vanity. Yeah, and that's kind of the purpose of this book. The author goes states it several times throughout the book, but he's attempting to determine what it is that a man gains in all of his busy pursuits. Everything that he could possibly go through, whether it's pursuing desire, whether it's pursuing pleasure, whether it's pursuing money, fame, fortune, whatever it is. What is it that a man gains from these things? But like you said, on the flip side, the experience of pain, the experience of trauma, the experience of hardship. Also, he, he recognizes that even in those, they don't last. They're not permanent. Uh, they are just as fleeting as uh, things like wealth. Um, and that's the whole purpose of this. And in the book, he seems to reveal a, an accompanying depression that goes along with the pursuit of wealth or fame or money or pleasure for their own sake. Or anything really in general. Exactly. Yeah. Anything apart from God. It's, and that's, it's more, yeah, it's that. It's anything apart from God because it is, and I think this is what I saw the most when I first read through this book, is this just complete hopelessness. Mm. This complete just weariness right of the author and saying you know i've done all of these things and i've i've pursued to the fullest extent every single possible method of of experience on this earth under the sun right i have pursued wisdom and it just brought me sorrow i have pursued wealth and i it's rotting in storehouses. I've pursued, and I get to give it away to my kids. To my kids, right. I've pursued folly and foolishness. I've pursued wine. I've pursued, it Women didn't matter. Yeah, yeah, everything. He's, he's pursued anything and he's like, he could. what's the point? I'm so, without God, there is no point at all. It, it It's kind of funny. Um my dad watched this episode of, I think it was the Twilight Zone. Ah, gotcha. He watched an episode of the Twilight Zone, and I didn't even see it, but he told me about it. 
and it was about this guy and he he's a gambler and he's a he's a womanizer and he's a drunk and he's and he dies and he wakes up in this new place and he he goes to the he wakes up and he's there's a drink right there beside him and it's his favorite drink and he drinks it and oh that was the best i've ever had and and then he goes to the bar and he he goes to the gambling tables and and he's rolling dice and he wins every single time and he's got all the women he could possibly want and they're beautiful and and he keeps doing it he thinks oh man i must be in heaven this is amazing and he's got anything he could possibly want but there's absolutely no resistance there's no struggle there's but there's no point and he just Mm. gets so tired of it and finally he looks at the dealer and he's like man i never thought heaven was gonna be so boring and the guy says who says you're in heaven (laughs) and it's like that's kind of what i feel you know as you the feel that feeling of this like it's completely worthless right yeah the the pointless cycle that we're all on and and for a man of solomon let's just let's just go ahead and say it's solomon yeah for a man at the end of his life uh, i mean first uh, kings chapter 10 we read about all of the stuff that solomon had uh he had anything and everything he wanted he had sovereigns coming from around the world just to ask him questions. He had talents, which, uh, a talent of gold. I don't know if you know this. is 60 pounds of gold, oh approximately. Oh, goodness. And he had multiple hundreds. In fact, it's 666 talents worth hmm, of gold being brought in. That's an interesting number. It is an interesting number. <laughs> being brought into a... Uh, uh, to the kingdom in tribute from outside nations. Uh, he, gold was so common in Jerusalem that, that silver was, was worthless. worthless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he had a throne of ivory. He had military power with chariots and horses. Uh, I mean, he had women, more women than he could possibly, uh, enjoy. enjoy. Right. I mean, more than one is I can't even. <laughs> you better not. Where do you even? <laughs> how do you even keep up with that? Right. Um, and but for them to then get to the end of his life and look back on it and go, how pointless was that? Yeah. All of these things, all these pursuits, how pointless was it? I think so, that I think the beauty of this book is that we can all truly understand that. Right. I mean, we can't understand the depth of wisdom that he had. There's no possible way. And yet, we can understand the futility of of life without God, the pursuit of everything without really any real purpose. It seems like we should be able to say that, but I don't know that that's actually true in practice uh, in, in the world itself. Um, because there are plenty of people on Wall Street right now who, who are out there pursuing wealth, and and that is their life. If things go bad, they end it. Um, you okay, know, there's plenty true. of people who pursue sex for the point of sex and all sorts of of deviant forms of it. There's people who pursue. Uh, so you would think so. 
Uh, but I have to think, I have to believe that everybody who gets to the end of their life and looks back on it recognizes that it was all emptiness. I think that even in the minute, I mean, sure, you're going to get some little dopamine rush for mm. getting whatever you're striving for. But even then, it's like, okay, I just need the next thing. I need the next hit. You know, I need right. the next the next thing and the next thing. I need right. the next boost of confidence. It's never enough. Right. And I think that we all really can understand that. Uh, yes. And I think addicts can understand it to even a, a greater degree um, because that's the whole point of or, or the whole experience of addiction is eventually it's not enough. You need more. Mm -hmm. And then that's not enough and you need more and that's not enough and you need more. And it just ceases being fulfilling in any way. Um, yeah. Fulfilling, effective. Right. Anything. Right. Absolutely. So that is that's absolutely profound that this man, Solomon, who had it all got to the end of his life and said, well, that was dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, it was such an honor when God offered him, you can have anything you want. And he says, you know what? I want wisdom to be able to rule your, your people well. That was such a good request. It was. And yet... He pursued wisdom. I mean, he was granted it and granted all sorts of wealth. Right. And yet it's like, it's almost like God was saying, okay, you know, when I gave you everything that was absolutely perfect in the garden, but that wasn't enough. Mm. Okay. Well, all right. How about if I remove all of the bad people in the flood and it's only good people left on the earth. Well, no, that wasn't enough. Right. You can't achieve holiness that way. Or perfection. Or perfection Utopia. that way. Okay. Well, how about if I give you all of the wisdom that you could possibly ever have? Well, you can't find perfection that way either. Right. Hmm. It's like, let me pursue every possible human method known. And you still can't attain my holiness so i'm gonna to have to do it for you and he provides his son well and i don't think it's even holiness i think it's the uh the desire for utopia that most of us have in some way or another um, well i mean adam and eve had that utopia well true true but they you're right there was there was something more but the, there's a utopia that we're still hoping for in the future um new heavens and new earth type utopia sure um and that's that's our our great hope, and that seems to be the hope of uh, most movements through history is some form of utopian ideal, maybe not utopian, but better than that that guy type <laughs> or at ideal. Least better than what we have right now, or yeah, better than what grass what, is always greener, right? And we see that throughout Scripture, whether it's Israel being given power, whether Israel being given the king like they wanted in Saul. Even being given a king after God's own heart in David, it still didn't bring them uh, what they what they needed. It was it was as the preacher says, it was vanity. It was as vaporous. It, it didn't last. None of it lasts. Um, even in, in when we get to, uh, for example, the time of the Maccabees, we just want freedom from oppression. Mm -hmm. Okay, they got freedom from oppression, and what do they do? They invite Roman and make a make a. Uh, <laughs> 
make a treaty with Rome and suddenly yep. Rome gets too big for their britches and decides to rule the world. And suddenly they're under yet another oppressive empire uh, throughout history. We see that this is even the founding of the American experiment was a, an attempt for a better than it's ever been ideal. Uh, and it worked for a while. It, it did. Uh, but that's also the the motivation between behind uh, socialist style movements. Is this better than we've ever had it before? Mm -hmm. um, this this pursuit of some sort of utopian type, while not totally achievable, um, better than it was, better than it is. Um, and I think that's one of the more profound uh, thoughts on the Bible. Uh, just going through it and, and kind of mapping and considering each of the many different uh, things that God gives the people and then comparing it here to the book of Ecclesiastes and saying, well, even that too whew, went away. I was going to say, I think that the only difference between creation's Garden of Eden scenario and new heaven and new earth is that we will have seen the ramifications of a negative choice. Mm, yeah. We will have seen what it did to us and how much it, how much pain it brought destroyed everything. Right. And seen how gorgeous the picture is that God created out of it. But I think we will be older and wiser mm. and maybe not make the same choice again. I think we will still have free will. Right, right. Well, I don't think we I don't can know. properly I, conceptualize. I really can't possibly imagine what it's going to be like. Right. But. I don't think we can possibly conceptualize what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. Uh, I mean, our lives are cycles right now. And that's one of the big things in chapter one is the cycles of life and how they're never ending. Um and the new heaven and new earth, the way that it's it's spoken of, is those cycles end. No more night. There, death is no more. Uh, it's all life and light and good. And and I'm not sure humans can conceptualize what that will be like, because sure. it's going to take a new human to be able to inhabit a place like that. Yeah, that and that's going to be interesting. Right. So, uh, yeah, moving on. Under the sun. Uh, that is it's such a, a profound thing. So every time that you read Under the Sun in the book of Ecclesiastes, just stop and pause for a moment and consider what it is that's being, that's being spoken of there, what, what all that idiom encompasses. Uh, another fascinating thing about this book is the Tetragrammaton, the, the name of God, yod heh vav -He, does not appear in the book at all. Hmm. Some like Esther. Very similar to Esther, yes. Uh, and uh, that's led some commentators to, to make claims like uh, this book is a fallen book. That it's, it's, it's purely, uh, while inspired by the spirit, it's, it's purely a uh, um, human work uh, because it deals only with human things and the name of God doesn't appear in the book, which I would disagree with because I think that the themes within the book and the conclusion that the author comes to um, it makes it a transcendent book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think that they can rightfully say that God is not there, just like they can't rightfully say that he's not in Esther. Right. We can see his work, just like we can't. Okay, 
Yeshua says that you don't see the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects right. that it has. It's the same exact way in the book of Esther. It's the same way here. You might not be able to see him actually, the tetragrammaton, the name of God, in the book itself, but you can absolutely see God in the book. And that is a true statement because Elohim appears over 40 times in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a true statement. You can't see God in the book. You just never see his his direct name in this book. And so, yeah, the, this book does mention God. It does speak of him 40 times in 12 chapters. It's uh, re- not insignificant. That's actually more times than the word vapor is found in the book. Uh, one other interesting tidbit about this book that has caused some commentators to kind of put it on the back burner of, of things to be studied is that uh, this book is never directly quoted in the New Testament. Now, that's fascinating. There's there's not a single time in the New Testament that any New Testament author quotes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Hmm. Now, there are at least four times where New Testament authors say things that are very similar to something that's said in the book of Ecclesiastes, but they don't quote directly from it. So it's eat, almost like... Eat, drink, and be merry. That's... Uh, I mean, it's not said exactly, right, but it right. is said again. Right. Uh, well, that's more, I think, uh, Paul's pulling from Seneca, a Greek philosopher, philosopher when he when he makes that statement. I'm speaking more of uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It... it talks about the worthless worshiper who offers sacrifices and, and has many words. Uh, but mm. then in, in Jesus, Yeshua says that when you come to, to make prayers in Matthew chapter 6, don't be like the hypocrite and, and use a lot of words and be puffed up. It's a very similar yeah. idea, uh, but it's not a direct quote. So the the because it's not a direct quote, some commentators, pastors, theologians, they put this book on the back burner again. Well, it's obviously not that important. If it's not affirmed in the New Testament and not quoted from in the New Testament, then why should we study it, right? Nah. Yeah. So, um, but that is an interesting tidbit. So as we go through the book, uh, I'm going to try and pull out those those instances where we do find correlations between the book of Ecclesiastes and the New Testament. One last thing I think we need to get into before we actually dig into this book, we kind of need to know where the book is going. Uh, if we don't know where this book is going, it is super easy to land on a Gnostic-style interpretation. And to be very depressed, really. It, right, a very depressed outlook and, and a Gnostic interpretation. What do I mean by a Gnostic interpretation? Uh, in Gnosticism, which arose uh, late first century, they saw the universe as, um, or they saw the God of the Old Testament, the, the creator God, as an evil God, the, the physical world then being evil. The mm-hmm. God of the New Testament then is the spiritual God, and he is trying to save us out of this evil of the, of the world. Um, all flesh is evil. All flesh all is evil type idea. Good. All right. Everything under the sun, all physical things are bad. Uh, I've talked about this before. The book of Colossians directly attacks this idea, this Gnostic ideal. Um, but I can definitely see where you could come up with that concept if you didn't know where you were going in this exactly, book. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so the, the outcome of this Gnostic ideal or Gnostic thought process was one of two things. There's either overabundance. Uh, it's a debauchery 
Um, in any way, the flesh doesn't matter. It's evil. So just go ahead and do whatever you want in the flesh because it's not what you do with the flesh that matters. It's what's in your mind. It's what's in your spirit that matters. Those are the things that save you, not what you do in the flesh. If you have the right thought, right, then everything's good. You can right. do whatever it's, you want. It's very similar to the modern Christian ideal of, well, as long as you assent to these particular truths mentally, then it doesn't matter what you do physically. That, that is very much a, go- a Gnostic type gospel. Shall we sin more that grace may be, may be Right, right. Um, The other outcome of the Gnostic thought is complete asceticism. The idea of do not touch, do not taste, do not drink. The physical is evil, so don't engage in the physical in any way. Puritanism, yes. Very, very similar to Puritan's ideals of the the physical world. You don't engage with it. Everything needs to be drab, dull. You, You avoid any kind of pleasure whatsoever. The book of Ecclesiastes is not shooting for either one of those extremes. And it's not it's not trying to be Gnostic in any way. It's not it's not poo-pooing the physical. It, it, in fact, there's several places throughout the book where he's like, "Look, enjoy your wife of your youth, enjoy drink, enjoy pleasure. These yeah. things are here. They're they're your reward for your toil." So, and it says it's of God. Right, right. So we need to make sure that we don't impose this Gnostic. Uh, thought process onto the book. And the way we do that is by observing his conclusion. Now, throughout the book, there are several times where he seems to be to make a conclusion. Uh, I looked around and I saw such and such a thing and I thought this. And as we go through the book, we're going to see kind of various steps that the author went through of, of tentative conclusions. Well, okay, my previous conclusion didn't work out, so I'm going to try out this new conclusion. We're going to test it a bit. It's like the, you know, multiple endings of the Lord of the Rings, you know. Uh, or, or it's more like a scientific <laughs> process where okay, I have I have this thought where I, th- <laughs> I have this thought where I, I think this is how it should be. Uh, then I do run the experiment and I realize, nope, that's not quite it because this doesn't agree with the, what I expect to see. So let me try again new new thought process let me let's try doing something new with this and then let's test it again and so the author goes through these these series of conclusions that all fail and it's at the very end of the book ecclesiastes 12:13 the second to the last verse in the book where he actually comes to the conclusion of the book and it says let us hear the conclusion of the entire matter Fear God and guard his commands, for this applies to all mankind. That's to who? All mankind. Who? All mankind. And, okay. and, and do what? Oh, you're supposed to fear God and, and guard his commands. Keep his commands. Okay. Yes. Two very important things. Fear God and keep his commands. And this applies to all mankind. This is This is the conclusion that he's shooting for. And the point that we're going to find as we go through the book is that your status and your station in life doesn't really matter because it's vaporous. What does matter is that you remain true to God regardless of where you find yourself in life. Yeah. If you're going to be a servant, be the best one you can be. Right. And it's very similar to Job where he's at the highest high and he's true to God, but then he's brought to the lowest low and he's still true to God. God. Uh, There's, it's that same, same type of thought process that's going on. Only Job's is going through it in a, through a completely different sort of set of circumstances. 
But the the overarching theme, this is the conclusion that he comes through after 12 chapters of, of thoughts on the book. So as we go through the book, let's kind of keep that in mind. Let's keep in mind the conclusion of the matter that he's he's aiming for, that he will eventually reach at the end of this this work. Because it's so easy to get lost in the in the trees and lose sight of that conclusion, to be surrounded by contradictory statements or him saying something is good or coming to a seeming conclusion in the middle of the book that doesn't quite feel right. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that's not the conclusion he's going to land on eventually, uh, right. which is super important to reading this book. Because if you don't have that conclusion in mind, you can go wherever. There's all sorts of different places that you can go with the content of this book. And I mean, this this book is just absolutely prime cherry picking. All right. Well, yeah, soundbite theology in this book yeah. will lead a person down some very terrible paths. Yeah. Um, and so we need to make sure that we don't cherry pick or that we don't soundbite theology this book. We need to make sure that we recognize what the book is attempting to do. And with that, who's ready to study the book of Ecclesiastes? You? You're ready to go? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and uh, cut it off for today. And we will see you all next week when we come back and open the book of Ecclesiastes and begin to address chapter one, possibly chapter two. We'll see how far we get. So until next time. Seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.